Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. I'm Adria Breyer, moderator of this incredible program and chair of the new programming at Commonwealth Club called the Member Engagement Experience. Please know that all programs at the Commonwealth Club are open to the public. You are here at the inauguration of a new series of programs of the Commonwealth Club that will be mind, body, and spirit related. This program is unique in that members of the club will be able to participate with our prominent speakers like Dr. Williams in a special only members private online reception when the basic presentation is over. Members will receive a special Zoom for that, or you'll find it in the chat today when this program is completed. If you're not a member of the club, you can participate in this post program by just going to commonwealthclub.org. As I said, everyone is welcome, and we have people from around the world attending our programs. A moment of background on the Commonwealth Club. It was established decades ago to present all sides of an issue without prejudice. We have top people in their fields from around the world presenting virtually and in person. It's a social club, an intelligent club with members who are curious to know what's going on in all different arenas. Remember, our membership is about $10 a month. And quite frankly, I have a suggestion. We all have enough stuff, material stuff. The gift of intellectual stimulation and camaraderie is priceless. Um, I've given Commonwealth Club memberships as engagement gifts, wedding gifts, new baby gifts, because the parents need some stimulation when they are not able to sleep. Christmas gifts, Hanukkah gifts, birthday gifts, baby gifts, weddings. It's an extraordinary gift for a little over $10 a month. One other note is you can have a cocktail party in your own home, not being together or together by everyone choosing a program they want to watch and then engaging separately on a Zoom call and all discussing what you've learned. It's a brilliant, brilliant way to have camaraderie and community at a price that's, you know, barely seven movie tickets plus popcorn. So now on to the program. Um, we have Dr. Nolan Williams from Stanford University. He's, go- he's an assistant professor with the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. He's discussing some extraordinary research on treating serious depression without side effects. This research has gotten worldwide attention, and Dr. Williams will go over all of that with us. I do want to make a comment here because it's very relevant, particularly the past few years, when so many of us have been in isolation and many others in fear, even if someone is not in Dr. Williams' program and will explain at the end how they can participate possibly, this program gives hope to people, people who've been dealing with depressions on all levels, hope that there are other alternatives others other than that which they know of. So please share this program widely. Afterwards, the podcast will be available within a week and just share it with everybody you love. So, Dr. Williams, I'm going to turn this program over to you. Great. Thank you so much for, um, for the introduction and the opportunity to, to present today. Um, let's go from here. Okay. Um, so I'm going, to, oops, there we go. I'm going to talk about a, a therapy that we've been developing in the lab here at Stanford and kind of go through um, what that is exactly and um, and what it means as far as psychiatric treatment. Um, you know, just to say, and I'll say this again at the end of the talk, we have a couple of trials going on for this sort of technology. And so if folks want to, um, you know, to, to go to the website and take a look at what we have going on study-wise and get in touch with us, these are the ways to do it. So, you know, I've spent a lot of my career working um, on treatments for something called treatment-resistant depression. People call this medication-resistant depression or hard-to-treat depression. And really what that means is it's folks that um, have a difficulty with responding to oral antidepressant drugs. And so folks who take drugs, um, you know, once a day for depression, and after six, eight, ten weeks, you're not feeling um, any different, and you try a couple of those, um, 
you know, that's treatment resistant depression. And this is relevant because uh, depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide, right? So, um, so if you look at disability related to cancer and heart disease and all of that sort of thing, depression's more disabling than that. So moderate depression is more disabling than, um, than having an acute heart attack. Severe depression is uh, more disabling than dying um, of cancer without a treatment. So not to say that those other things aren't also disabling, but just to give you a sense of how truly disabling depression is. And about half of the, um, the individuals that, that suffer from depression, like I said, uh, ultimately end up with this treatment-resistant um, label. And you know, if you think about it, if you go into the supermarket and you go and buy a, a gallon of milk, you know, one person that you come across in that group is going to have treatment-resistant uh, major depression. So it's a pretty common problem. Um, you know, treatment-resistant depression is where a lot of the costs from depression are because those folks are the ones that are quite disabled. And so they have a loss of work, relationships, they have increased risk of heart disease and other, um, other illnesses. And, uh, you know, not only cognitive dysfunction from depression, but it increases your risk of other neurocognitive illness as well. Um, and, um, you know, treatment resistant depression costs a whole lot of money. It costs a hundred billion dollars a year, um, annually. And so folks have quite, um, a significant financial burden just from, you know, medical costs and, and loss of, um, loss of wages due to, to not being able to, to do the work they could otherwise do if they were well. And so, um, you know, what does this look like, right? And so we, we have folks who have depression. Generally, they come in under the framework of a primary care doctor's office, and then they talk to their primary care doctor. Usually, it's usually not a psychiatrist at first. It's their primary doctor. Tell them about their depression symptoms, and they try something like a select and selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. And they try, you know, one of those and then sometimes multiple of those. And at some point after trying a lot of those drugs uh, and psychotherapy approaches, they end up seeing a psychiatrist. And ultimately, if it's not been, you know, a lot of the medication trials haven't been effective, they come in to see somebody like myself who's very focused on treatment resistant conditions. And, and that's not because those folks aren't trying, they're actually trying quite hard in most circumstances. It's because their brain is not responsive to these medications, right? The medications that we, you know, have out there for, for depression, they don't have a complete response, right? Um, after a lot of trials, um, some people can find one that works for them. Um, but some people um, can't, and their brain just doesn't really respond to that, in which case they come to see to see us. And so, you know, we had this, you know, bigger question of, instead of finding these sorts of treatments by serendipity, which a lot of the, the first antidepressants um, were found due to serendipity, could we engineer a solution? Could we come up with an engineering solution to depression? In the same way that we came up with an engineering solution to say abnormal rhythms in the heart, right? We understand what the process is at a level enough, the anatomy, the physiology enough to be able to design something that would that would work in that setting. And so, you know, that question is framed under this greater question of what is a mental illness? What is a psychiatric illness? And, and for that, you know, what is a neurological, what are some of the neurological illnesses that you can come across? And so, you know, let's say Parkinson's disease, individuals with Tourette syndrome or tics, Alzheimer's disease, generalized um, dystonia. These are conditions that affect brains, affect brain circuitry and have an altered effect on the brain circuitry. And, and what I'd argue to you here is that depression, um, you know, unipolar major depression, bipolar depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, and others are similarly brain conditions with similar um, sorts of 
circuit abnormalities, not exactly the same in the case of Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, but similar in the sense that there are brain circuits involved and those brain circuits get affected by whatever that illness is. The real difference between the two disciplines as it relates to thinking about this is more about how much do we know about what's driving the pathology, right? In the case of um, Parkinson's disease, we have a decent story about how that ultimately happens. We, we still have a good sense of how it initiates, but we have a, we have a pretty good sense of how that ultimately um, rolls out in the brain because we have um, pathological specimens in the case of Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease. And, um, you know, for, for depression, bipolar disorder, OCD, post-traumatic stress, we're, we're less clear about that. We know there's circuitopathies. We have really good, um, really good evidence to support that, but um, we're still trying to learn the kind of the origin story of how these illnesses um, happen and progress in the brain. But nonetheless, they're all under this framework of brain circuitry. If you look at depression specifically, you know, folks have been thinking about this for, for a long time. And you look at connectivity differences between depressed individuals and non-depressed individuals, what you see, and this was an early study performed at Stanford nearly, um, you know, about 15 years ago, is that if you look at the difference between folks who are not depressed and depressed, and the difference between folks who are depressed for a short period of time versus a long period of time, what you see is connectivity differences as the illness becomes more chronic, where the depression area, the sadness area in the brain called the subgenual anterior cingulate is connected to this self-representation, kind of over-connected over time, where people get more and more connectivity in that region. And essentially, the depression sadness area is anchored to the self-representation, which is why these folks have this significant experience of sadness. And mm. so you know, we've been we've been thinking about this and thinking in terms of you know what is what is depression and and in the network level and then how would you interact with that understanding right so you know convergent evidence across lots of different ways of look at the, looking at this suggests that in the normal brain an area called the prefrontal cortex or more specifically the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is governing the sadness area in depression, the subgenual anterior cingulate. And so that people experience sadness when they're not depressed, but it goes away pretty quickly because the governor clamps down on that sadness area and shuts it down, right? So we can find out some really sad news. We can see something really sad on the, on, you know, on the nightly news. And we may be sad for an hour, but we wake up the next morning and generally we're feeling okay. And that's because the, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is clamping down on the subgenual anterior cingulate. In depression, what happens is that the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is underactive and the subgenual anterior cingulate is overactive and the dorsolateral can't govern that area anymore. It can't clamp down on that area anymore. So it goes unopposed and people experience a, a sadness that's really out of their volition. They go to sleep sad, they wake up sad, they go, you know, they, they spend their whole day sad. And it's because they don't have a way of the system getting, um, getting the brain out of it. And so what we have thought a lot about is, can you use stimulation within the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and specifically in a very focal part of the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex to upregulate it and subsequently downregulate the sadness area. So can you buff up one area to shut down the other area? And so the idea is essentially using an external device to activate an internal brain region to change the balance of power between those brain regions back to the way it is in people that aren't depressed. 
And that's really the kind of basic idea of what this whole talk is about. Now, that may seem very unusual, right? Um, why, why can't it just be that I do talk therapy and this get, gets better? Why can't my significant other just snap out of it? Why can't the meds do that? I mean, those are all the sorts of questions that you get, right? But the base of it is that all of those ways of thinking about this or dealing with this are, are not rooted in the central abnormality in the brain, right? Similarly to if somebody has a heart problem, asking the question of why can't they just do some jogging and it get better? Or why can't they just, you know, I don't know, whatever else, you know, you could think about there, right? And those things are kind of peripheral, right? But what we're saying is we're going to get into the core problem, the kind of central problem that the subgenual cingulate in, in the case of depression is too overactive and the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is too underactive. And what we want to do is turn up the governor and have the governor govern, right? And, and so, you know, that's really the kind of core idea. And so transcranial magnetic stimulation the idea is that we can use a magnet, a focal magnet, to modulate that system and re-regulate that system so that the dorsolateral stimulation kind of adjusts the balance of power back to the governor being able to govern. And it does that through a, a phenomenon called Faraday's law. And so if you pulse a magnet, you can generate, transiently generate current in electrically conducting substances, right? So if you take the same electromagnet you put over wires of your TV, uh, you shouldn't do that, by the way. But if you did, then you would see that there maybe your TV would turn on for a half a second or maybe something weird would happen or whatever, right? Because you can generate current in those wires, right? You can generate current in anything that's electrically conductive. And in the case of the, the brain, what you're doing is you're turning on the brain region that normally turns on to regulate mood. And if you do that once, it doesn't really do anything. But if you send a signal into the brain that's very powerful, that signal tells you that you're sending, you know, that you're able to send a system signal that tells the system to turn on. And if you do that enough and you do the right signal, then you can tell it to turn on and, and quite in fact, stay on, right? So it's not just about turning on, but being able to stay on and re-regulate the sadness. And so we've known this for some time. So Mark George, um, you know, my one of my postdoc mentors back when I was a, a postdoc, did this in the mid-90s at the NIH. He was able to send a signal into the brain using TMS, uh, kind of an early signal. And with that signal, he was able to tell the system to um, turn on in some individuals. But the problem um, there was that it didn't work in everyone, right? And so what we found over time is that you need to do more adjustments of the parameter space of the stimulation to optimize it. And the reason why is because TMS is not one treatment. TMS is kind of like a pharmaceutical company, right? Janssen or Johnson Johnson or Pfizer, any of these companies, right? They can make one medication for one problem, and then they can make another medication for that same problem that may work better um, because the molecules aren't exactly the same. And so in that case, the electrical chemical organ, the brain, you're, you're modulating the chemical part of the brain, and you're using a specific chemical to do that. Right. And you may have that chemical packaged in a pill and other other substances that are inert that go into the pill. But the actual molecule you're putting into your body is the thing that causes the that is the medications um, effect. TMS is like the pill capsule. The TMS device is like the pill capsule. It can deliver all sorts of things. Some of them work. Some of them don't. Um, but it is the delivery system for, in this case, the electrical part of the electrochemical organ, the brain. And what we're doing here is we're using 
stimulation parameters in certain brain regions to send signals into the brain to do to accomplish certain outcomes. And so, you know, with that kind of older technology, what we observed is, you know, one and a half to three people out of 10 um, would get better with uh, conventional TMS. And that was the original 1995 um, sort of approach. And the idea there is that um, you're sending a signal once a day into the brain, but you're sending it into a more nonspecific part of the prefrontal cortex. And just like with learning in school, if you if you see something once a day, you know, for a couple of months, some people remember it, right? And uh, and that's kind of the idea there. And that was a really breakthrough move at the time because we didn't think you could do something like this. We didn't think you could use an electromagnet to send a signal in the brain to do anything. And you know, in that sense, it was quite useful, right? Because we wanted um, we wanted to be able to know if you could do this at all, right? This idea of inducing the brain to fire through magnets non-invasively, which is kind of a breakthrough idea. The second generation of this was instead of using man-derived stimulation approaches, what we figured out is to use um, use kind of our own signaling process in the brain. And so we're able to take recordings from the hippocampus and play that information back into the brain to send a signal that the brain is um, used to hearing. And because of that, we're able to do it at a much uh, more efficient time frame. And so we're able to give these 50 hertz bursts every fifth of a second. So it's a pattern within a pattern. And we're able to do that over a short period of time, over three minutes, and generate a very similar sort of outcome to the 40-minute stimulation approach. And we're able to do that because we're sending a signal into the brain that's much closer to the way that the brain understands information. And so it's a repetitive stimulation that is a memory signal in the brain. And what it's saying is to turn on brain region, stay on, remember to stay on. That's what it's saying. And that's what the goal um, there is. And, you know, similar sort of thing. We get, depending upon how you look at the data, about, you know, th three out of 10 people better. And then, you know, the, the issue um, with... Uh, <clears throat> with these stimulation approaches is they're not personalized, meaning they, they go into kind of a more vague um, dorsolateral spot in the brain that may or may not have mood regulation capabilities. And it's a low dose and it takes a long time to stimulate. And so normal TMS, um, you know, it takes weeks to months to work and, um, and it doesn't work in everyone. Um, but in the people it does work for, it's really transformative for them. Um, and so we don't want to kind of take that away from it. But to try to use this for psychiatric emergencies or settings where people need to get better really quickly, it has a limitation there. Or if we want to treat more of the pie and get more people better, it has a limitation there. And so, you know, we've kind of developed this third generation stimulation approach where we personalize the stimulation location. We put in a really high dose stimulation approach per day, and we send a signal into the brain that's similar to the way that the brain remembers information, and we're able to get a rapid effect over a short period of time. And so those are the, that's kind of the parameter space that this operates in. And what's useful about that is that we can treat people in psychiatric emergencies. So if you're depressed and you're suicidal and you go into the hospital and you end up um, being admitted to the hospital, you could use this to kind of get out of that situation, you know, relatively uh, quickly, right? You'd be able to kind of get well um, and get out of the hospital in a few days um, with a stimulation approach like this versus being stuck in the hospital depressed 
for an extended period of time. And that's one of the features that we, we think about when we're talking about using this sort of an approach. And what we've seen with our, um, with our trials is that in the active stimulation arm, we get most people well for a period of time after the stimulation wraps up versus in the sham group, we really didn't see much in the way of stimulation. So if you look at it, you know, 80 to 90% of people at some point in the four-week follow-up were able to um, experience um, depression reduction consistent with remission versus the sham group where it was only about 13%. And uh, in the open-label trials, 90% of people were able to experience remission right after the stimulation approach was over. And so it's a huge number of people who experience improvements in mood after this um, stimulation wraps up and really can help their mood really rapidly. <clears throat> and so, you know, we're trying to understand these non-responsive individuals. Can we really predict with the brain image who will get better and who won't get better with this um, approach? So one of my trainees, Anish Mitra, who's a um, psychiatrist and neuroscientist at Stanford, tried to ask this question. And so, you know, what's interesting is, is that if you look at the brain and you look at the pattern of the fluctuation of the blood in the brain, which is the way, by the way, that we, we figure out where the, the target is in the brain, then um, if you look at that and you look at that that set of brain regions and you ask the, the question of how do these fluctuations in the blood um, signal happen in each one of the brain regions that are connected and implicated in mood and um, how are they um, temporally related to each other? What you find is slight differences in when one turns on versus when another turns on. Right. And if you can look at it, it's it's subtle, but you can kind of see in certain spots the blue wave happens before the, the red wave. And so in normal mood in this bottom panel, the the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, that area that we talked about earlier, this area turns on before the subgenual anterior cingulate in time. It governs the subgenual anterior cingulate, right? And if, um, and if you look at the cingulate, it, is, it, it turns on a little bit later. So there's, there's an indication that there's a sender of information and a recipient of information in this case. And so, you know, what Anish has found is that in individuals that are depressed, the information sending is flipped. That cingulate area that's involved in sadness happens first, and then the dorsolateral happens second. Mm -hmm. And in people that respond to the saint stimulation approach, it flips the directionality so that the left dorsolateral and um, prefrontal cortex again governs the the cingulate cortex right it again hap, you know comes on first and we can actually see differences in the scan before everybody before anybody gets stimulated um of whether or not they look like somebody that they would respond versus somebody that would not respond and we and so we can kind of see those those differences um in time and, and it makes a lot of sense right if you look again we go back to this, this idea that in depression, you have an, an underactivity of the left dorsolateral and an overactivity of the cingulate, right? Just to reinforce this, an underactivity of the DLPFC, an overactivity of the cingulate. In, um, in normal healthy controls, you know, it is the, the DLPFC, this dorsolateral prefrontal, regulates the cingulate. And in, with TMS, what we can do is we can send the signal information in the right way again. And so that's kind of the aha moment with this whole body of literature, right, is that we can send a signal of information into the brain and tell the brain to 
flip the directionality of the signal so that the signal is signaling from the DLPFC again to the cingulate and governing it, controlling it, making sure that it that it is under um, its control and less um, sadness is experienced. And what we found is that this SAINT stimulation approach, this rapid aggressive stimulation approach, is really good at flipping that signal. It's really good at reversing the flow of information from the dorsolateral to the to cingulate instead of how it was before with depression, where the cingulate was kind of controlling or governing the area that's normally involved in itself governing the brain, right? Which is pretty cool. I mean, I think that to me, what that does, right, is that 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 sort of, and we have a lot of work to kind of replicate that and other labs to kind of fully prove that out. And we have a lot of work to do to really tell this story again, um, you know, again and again until, you know, it's replicated enough to be able to, you know, to feel 100% confident that this is what's going on. But in our first data set, um, you know, we see this is very, very clear. So if we can replicate this again, then that tells you kind of what depression is, right? If, if this is replicatable, then that tells you that the problem is a signaling problem between these brain regions and the solution is a signaling solution, right? Sending a signal back into the system to tell the system to govern it um, again. So that's the idea there. Um, and, and what, you know, what a lot of the work has been has been focused on. And so let me skip back to the imaging. And so, you know, this is the, the group of folks that's been, um, you know, working on this for some time. It's a big group. Right now, we're engaged in a whole lot of different trials to try to understand this. So we have um, one trial where we scan people every single day that they get the five-day course. And we're able to capture when the flipping of the signal happens in the brain, which I think is super cool, right? So you can actually see more of a movie style change as the person's mood improves. And so we're really trying to trying to capture that. And then, um, you know, we have another one where we're trying to use neuroimaging to predict kind of depression types, you know, types of people that have various symptoms in depression and then match treatments with stimulation approaches. We have, we have an, um, a study looking at obsessive compulsive disorder and trying to use stimulation to modulate obsessive compulsive disorder and use neuroimaging to type folks and to capture the change there. And, um, you know, a whole host of other studies, right? And so, you know, we're really, um, we're really committed to trying to find ways, um, you know, to treat everybody that's interested in coming into the lab and, uh, and trying to kind of interface with everybody that's, um, that's involved with the, you know, with the idea that there, there should be some study or clinical service for you, um, you know, and if you reach out to us, then you can, you know, then we can best try to help and to try to really think about extending these efforts to new you know, conditions. I was just talking to Stanford, you know, eating disorder program the other day, you know, whether we could do this in, in, in things like anorexia or, you know, we've been working in, in the PTSD realm and trying to think about that. One of, one of my collaborators, Greg Salem, has been using neurostimulation to try to treat addiction. You know, he's got some um, interesting data there, but the big, the big goal is to kind of re- engineer the way that psychiatry operates right and so if you look at the rest of medicine as we escalate acuity right if i have chest pain right now and i go my primary doctor looks at me and thinks i may be having a heart attack they're going to send me to the emergency room and then um, after i get you know to the emergency room if i'm truly having a heart attack they're going to send me to the cath lab and i'm going to get a bunch of invasive procedures right and in psychiatry as we escalate care up to emergency care, we lose treatment options because there are less biological treatments within the inpatient unit. 
and, and there aren't really uh, much in the way of biological tests. And so this idea that we really have to kind of focus on these high acuity settings and building new treatments inside of those settings and really kind of focusing on that goal is a big um, mission for the group, you know, really thinking through, um, you know, how to do that and how to implement those sorts of things. And, um, and so that's, that's a big piece of, of the pie for us is trying to really kind of change the way that, um, that, that mental health treatment is, is uh, offered um, in the U.S. And, and globally. And so that's been a big um, effort there. Um, you know, and, and we've had a lot of um, partners in that, you know, a lot of the funding agencies, National Institute of Health, um, you know, One Mind, NARSAD, um, a new one with uh, Welcome Leap and uh, Pritzker and really, you know, Foundation for OCD Research really partnered with a lot of these organizations to make, to make these better treatments. And just to kind of, again, highlight that we have a lot of treatment studies available and, um, and an opportunity for, uh, for folks to come in and really, um, really get um, access to these experimental therapeutics. And this is the, the um, website and phone number and email um, for that. So I'll kind of pause, pause here. And I know, you know, um, there was some potential questions we were going to kind of field and kind of go from there. Dr. Nolan, I don't know how you have made such a complex topic understandable to people like me (laughs) (laughs) who are not steeped in the science world. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Absolutely. I also want to thank you and your staff because as we affect positively an individual in health and in emotion, depression, we affect their family, their loved ones, and their entire network. So we raise how the whole world can feel better. And that's a, that's an extraordinary life commitment. And you've obviously made that. Um, We have uh, some clarifications I'd like to ask. Side effects are there. I've probably got about ten of these, so let's see if we can whip through them. Side effects? Yeah, you know, so uh, great question. So there are some. You know, generally, with TMS, there are some side effects to note. You know, there is a sensation to it, right? Because it has an effect on the nerves in the scalp and in the skin, and so people can feel it. Uh, you know, some people find that good, neutral, bad. It just depends on the person. Um, you know, it's never so bad that people will quit or they can't tolerate it so much that they don't do it. It's more, you just have to really work with a person and the power levels of the machine to kind of optimize it for them. And so that's one, um, you know, one aspect. And then there's a risk of, of headache. That's a real risk. So some people get a headache. It's always like a Tylenol responsive headache, you know, so people can take Tylenol and that seems to work to abort the headache. Um, and then there's a, in the case of normal TMS, a one in 30,000 risk of seizure per session. In the case of our stimulation approach, we've never seen a seizure. So it's theoretical seizure risk. It's an exceedingly low seizure risk though. Um, you know, somewhere probably less, uh, possible than the one in 30,000, maybe one in a hundred thousand, who knows, just to give you a sense of things, uh, antidepressants like Wellbutrin have a one in 30,000 risk of seizure. So it, seems to be less of a seizure risk than that drug. Um, and that's really it. That's the only things that, that kind of pop out. It's a very safe procedure. Thank you. One of the reasons I was so interested in this is I know from experience with others, actually, that when they start to take antidepressants, oftentimes there are side effects and that the studies are on individual antidepressants. And as with most pharma, not necessarily when they're working together, do we know what the side effects are as they layer? Um, so I loved hearing about your program. Yeah, excellent. Let's see. Is there an increase in circulation in the scalp with this program? Yeah, I mean, I you know, it's a good question. I mean, it, it probably bypasses all of that because of the, you know, the nature of the magnet doesn't really interact with the scalp itself. It really only interacts with nerves and brain tissue. 
And so it probably avoids all of that and really just focuses on changing brain activity. Darn, I was hoping that uh, one of the positives of going through possible headache, et cetera, was that people's hair would get stimulated. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, no, that'd be good. I think if we could regrow hair with a TMS device, uh, it'd be even more popular. Right, exactly. Uh, so let's see, when you use the word sham, is sham the same as placebo? Yes. Yeah, sham is the same as placebo, exactly. Okay. Um, the, the shock therapy, totally different from shock therapy, right? That's right, yeah. So sh- so shock therapy, the kind of base thing in that uh, statement is is um, shock, right? Or, or in this case, electrical, direct electrical stimulation causing a seizure. And mm-hmm. so... Um, the goal of elect and when we what we call that's kind of the colloquial term what we call it kind of medically is electroconvulsive therapy. So the goal of electroconvulsive therapy is to give somebody anesthesia and have them have a seizure. Right. The goal of TMS is to not give somebody anesthesia and not have somebody have a seizure. So the right. goals, the goal, the kind of procedural goals are exact opposites. Now the therapeutic goal is the same. The therapeutic goal is for somebody to feel better from their psychiatric illness, but the way to get there is dramatically different. You know, ECT or what people call shock therapy is really a a convulsive therapy or seizure therapy that involves anesthesiologists. TMS is um, an approach that bypasses any sort of seizure, really just tries to stimulate the brain focally. And we don't want people to be on any kind of anesthesia that would interact with the stimulation approach actually. Right, logical. And in fact, my dad had PTSD from the various wars he was in and wanted very much to avoid going to get shock therapy, whereas it sounds like your treatments and the BSL treatments are not something that people would totally hide under the bed about. They'd actually welcome it if they're dealing with depression. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty boring uh, to watch a TMS um, approach. And, you know, Anytime any doctor says this is a boring this or that, you want to feel very good about that because that means that it's not difficult. Like embedded in that is it's not difficult or interesting. You never want to be an interesting patient and you never want to have your procedure be difficult, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because then that that kind of subtext is probably there's more risk, right? And right. so if somebody's saying it's a boring procedure, it's not boring in the sense the person's getting better. It's quite exciting. The person's getting better, but the actual procedure itself is super boring, right? You're putting a magnet on the head. The person's watching the next episode on the Netflix account while the stimulation's going in and doing what it's doing. And they're just sitting there and, you know, you hear something when you walk into the room. That's the only way you know anything's happening because you hear it. And then you just see this coil sitting in the person's head and they're watching you know, what, whatever the next Netflix white Lotus or whatever the next Netflix, uh, you know, show or whatever, right? Like that's what this is. And, um, and that's great, right? You want it to be extremely safe and extremely boring. And I always say that TMS is one of the safest medical procedures, um, because it's so anticlimactic. And so I can't, anybody that's actually seen this, I can't imagine that any of those folks would feel in any way like that this was a scary thing. It just looks like somebody sitting in a desk chair with a piece of equipment sitting on their head and they're watching Netflix. It's not That's like all. not like ET go home. And I think for our uh, for our audience, they most likely would be watching a Ken Burns documentary. OK, but- yeah, fair enough. <laughs> That was a great clarification, though, because people know they can, they're still living their lives while they're going through a procedure, which is great. Um, I think it's important to discuss insurance and FDA clearance. So would you please talk to Medicare and private insurance and what FDA clearance means? Yeah, absolutely. So TMS is covered by Medicare and uh, private insurance. It pretty much has been since 2014. Um, All the stimulation approaches that I just talked about are all FDA cleared. So kind of first, second, and third generation stimulation approaches are all FDA cleared, meaning the FDA has evaluated them, they're safe to do and all that good stuff. Um, And so, you know, depending upon the stimulation approach you're looking for, there are different kind of optionalities, right? The third generation one's really new. And so insurance is catching up on that. And studies are probably more the way to go there versus 
you know, the first two generations, the particularly the first generation, the insurance has been covering that for a long time. So it's easier to kind of just get that. Um, but yeah, you know, this is out there. It's all, you know, it's all over, you know, hospitals all around the, the US and the world. A lot of it ends up being, you know, more driven, I think, by your doctor, your, and it's, you know, at some level, your doctor's conceptualization of the problem, right? And so if you're thinking in terms of like what I call psychiatry 1.0, and you think, you think that the problem is content, then the answer is psychotherapy, right? In psychiatry 2.0, we've thought that the problem was chemical and the solution is chemical. And in psychiatry 3.0, we still very much embrace medications and psychotherapy, but we see those two interventions and neurostimulation is all acting on brain circuitry. And so then the solution is to change brain circuitry. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and what's, yeah, what's nice about this kind of third conceptualization of psychiatry is that it's, it's really much more focused on things that are um, reversible. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and less on thinking that this is a permanent deficit. Now, you know, there are, there's major mental illness like schizophrenia where it's not clear if that is reversible or not. So I'm not trying to say that everything's reversible. I certainly don't, um, you know, have the evidence to prove a statement like that, nor do I believe that. But, but I do think that a lot of illness um, that we have traditionally thought of is not uh, reversible seems to be reversible. Certainly our depression data would support a, a view of reversibility because if not, then you wouldn't be able to see the brain scan kind of return to looking like the normal brain scans, right? And so this idea of being able to use a probe in a system to push and kind of produce a reversible um, change is really, to me, exciting. Very, very exciting. In fact, in my consulting practice, I'm a cancer consultant and a, a life coach. I like to tell people, if you're miserable, don't think that that's who you are. There's an imbalance in your system that needs to be addressed. Because when people think it's who they are, hope goes totally sideways. Yep. Your right. program gives, gives hope to correct the imbalances. Yep. Let's see. We have a few more questions that I, while you were speaking... Um, let's see. Oh, triggers. Somebody has completed your program and you and I discussed previously, what are some of the triggers if they need to come back for what I call a tune-up? Yeah, that's great. No, I mean, that's being worked out now. Um, it looks like you can derive that off of a simple wearable device, you know, with physiologic information and some, some patient information. And, you know, if that's doable, then we're in a scenario where we can have folks kind of get triggered to come back in and get retreated, which I think is super exciting. Definitely. So, and then what is the plan for going into regular medical offices or even home settings? Is there something pending for your, for your third level? Because my understanding and correct me if I'm mistaken, is that the third level, what is what seems to be the most effective, but not yet necessarily totally out there in the world. Yeah. The third level is pretty new. And, um, you know, all of them, the question is, can you do this in a, in a, le- in a more um, home-like environment? And people have been trying to work that out. You know, it's, it's, not, um, it's not straightforward to, to try to do that at home just because there are a lot of technical issues that you have to get around. But, um, you know, there are folks out there that are really focused on trying to get that done. And I think that they're going to, they're gonna um, you know, get some, some traction there. Yep. You had also mentioned that um, additional studies, I think, were forthcoming. Yep. My, my understanding was that the work that's led to this already and you being interviewed around the world on all different kinds of media about it is because it was so effective. So how long was the study? How many people were in it? How was it tracked? The, the ones that led to clearance? Yeah, Exactly. Yeah, it's a pool of about 60 people or something across studies that led to the clearance. It's, um, you know, it, it they, they were tracked out till a month. Um, it's just kind of the nature of doing these sorts of trials. We're, we're doing larger ones where you can track people for a year now, but you kind of have to get, you have to have something successful to get enough funding to do those sorts of long-term follow-ups because they're expensive. 
Um, and, um, and so, you know, we were able to kind of follow people. We were able to get clinical evaluations and neuroimaging and kind of capture the whole, the whole data package. And then um, with that complete package, we were able to see, you know, those improvements um, after the treatment compared to the, the sham group in, in the case of the randomized control trial. Yay. And before I close this program, is there anything else people need to know to qualify for it? No, I mean, I think um, what you need to do is just to kind of sign on to the website and then be able to fill out a pre-screening survey and then folks will get in touch around what are the various options for you to, for next steps, yeah. Is it easy for you to put those two slides back up again? Yeah, no, that's totally easy. I'm happy to. So people can copy what they need to copy or take a picture with their phone? Yeah, so this is the... These are the options. Right now we have depression and OCD trials. And then here's the, the numbers to contact folks. Okay, 650-800-6920, bsl.stanford.edu. Dr. Williams, I am so grateful that you made the time to be with us. I know your schedule is bananas. You and I have been working on this since, what, 2021. Yep, um, that's right. Exactly. So, yeah, right? <laughs> I am going to close this program. This brings this uh, this portion to an end of the public portion. Um, thank you for presenting this research. Thank you incredibly to all of you for the work that you do. I know that your heart precedes you. I also want to thank our AV people because with everything's happening the past couple of years, the AV people and the Commonwealth Club staff have worked, I'd say, 24-7 to make sure that we're able to bring you the programming that you want and adapt to the times. So they they really do need to be thanked. And with that, I'm going to close this program. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.